Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Akev. We are in uh, the first triennial reading of every Parsha. With Deuteronomy, it's a little different in that we don't really have to worry in Deuteronomy about the fact that if we're missing two-thirds of the Parsha, we've missed some big fact, that we've missed some information that's another big part of the story. Because Deuteronomy, as we know, is Moshe's farewell speech to the people. So the, the, the people writing um, for the incredible reform that they want to have happen put it in the mouth of Moshe. And Deuteronomy is a reiteration of what we've gotten before. So we're not going to get brand new stories about the desert in Deuteronomy. We're not going to get brand new stuff. We do get some legislation that's different, and we've talked about that over the last few weeks. Um, But what I want to talk a little bit about is Deuteronomy's style And Micha Goodman, in his teachings about Deuteronomy, really stresses that Deuteronomy as a reiteration is really not the last book of the written Torah, but is instead the first book of the oral Torah. Because what what happens whenever you reiterate what events took place, what the meanings of those events are, you are already dealing with an interpretation. Once you retell a story, what you, what you emphasize and what you leave out are important in terms of what you're doing in the retelling. So whenever, so if you were to go tell somebody what I taught this morning, it's going to be what I taught through your lens of understanding, through what you took from it. It doesn't make it wrong, right? But, it, but it's, it's already an interpretation, that's what we have to remember with Deuteronomy. And it actually, for me, is what has made my 30th year of studying it um, a little more interesting is to really think as we look through what is reiterated, what is what gets put in and what gets left out. Because then the question becomes, why? Why does the Deuteronomist tell the story like we looked at last week when Moshe says, because of y'all, I didn't, I'm not going into the promised land. When that's not how we understood the story when we read it. We understood that Moshe, God holds Moshe responsible for, right, for what happens. And that's why Moshe doesn't get into the land as part of that story. We can argue about which thing that Moshe does or doesn't do is the, is the, is the reason. But it says pretty clearly it's Moshe. <clears throat> that God is frustrated with or, or that God is calling to account. So, so when we get the story retold in Deuteronomy and, and Moshe says, y'all are the reason I'm not going in. All right. Now we, it's interesting to just ask, why would the Deuteronomist, why would the people writing this, this radical new um, way of doing things, to try to stave off destruction, why would they change the story that way? So that's one thing. What what gets left out? What gets changed? But the other thing that's really important is what keeps being reiterated 
over and over and over and over. This We're going to look at chapter 8 of Deuteronomy today. And, and Micha Goodman points out that just in this section of Deuteronomy, like eight times the people are reminded about being brought out of Egypt. The Deuteronomist hammers again and again and again and again. Y'all need to remember that God brought y'all out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and brought you through the desert and all that went on there. That's not, that was not an easy trek. That was not an easy place to spend 40 years. And God took care of you and fed you and healed you and brought you to this amazing land over and over and over and over. So, so when we look at that, we have to start asking, what's the Deuteronomist's agenda by hammering the Egypt stuff over and over and over? And we alluded to it last week. We're going to spend a little more time with it this week. All right, let's look at, and I want you to, I want you to listen to the Deuteronomist's style. Not, we're not reading just for information here because we've already gotten this information. So we're, we're looking at the Deuteronomist style um, and, and what makes it unique, what makes it right, different from, from what we've uh, experienced before. Deuteronomy chapter eight. All right, and actually I'm gonna read a little bit in Hebrew. So you see the English. I'm gonna read a little bit so you hear a little bit of how this reads in Hebrew. Hachimer mitvotai imlo. Vaya ancha, vaya rivacha, vaya achilcha, etama ana sher loya data, the loya duna vatecha, lama an hoda acha, kilo ala lechem levado yichieha adam, ki alko mutsafi adonai yichieha adam. Simlatcha, lovalta mealecha, uraglecha, Lovatseka ze arbaim shana. Veyadata im levavecha, kika asher yisa'er ish et beno Adonai elohecha misarecha. You can hear over and over and over and over in the Hebrew, you, 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 you. Y'all, 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 y'all. That's on purpose. So in the Hebrew, that's the cha or chem. Over and over and over and over. Y'all shall faithfully observe all of the right instruction that you're getting today, that you may thrive and increase and you'll possess the land. Remember the long way that God made you travel in the wilderness for 40 years. God was testing you by hardship. So this is the Deuteronomist's interpretation of those 40 years. You were being tested by hardships to learn what was in your heart, whether you would keep God's commandments or not. God subjected you to the hardship of hunger and then gave you manna to eat, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known in order to teach you that human beings do not live on bread alone, but may live on anything that, 
and I don't want to use the English here, anything that comes out of the mouth of God. The clothes that you wore did not uh, fall off you. They didn't wear out and fall off you. Your feet did not swell. Bear in mind that, that God, your God, disciplines you as a person disciplines his son. Therefore, keep the commandments of your God, to walk in God's ways, and to be in awe of God. For your God is bringing you into a good land, a land which stream with streams and springs and fountains issuing from plain and hill. This is important in a place dependent on rain for water and for crops. A land of wheat and barley, of vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat food without stint, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you can mine copper. And here we go. Here's where we get the commandment for uh, benching after eating, for saying the grace after meals. V'achalta v'savata when you have eaten your fill and give thanks to Adonai, your God, for the good land which God has given you, take care. Hishamer. Guard yourselves, literally. Guard yourselves. Lest you forget your God and fail to keep God's commandments, rules, and laws, which I enjoin upon you this day. Lest, when you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses to live in, and your herds and flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold have increased, and everything you own has prospered, viram levavecha, vishachachta et Adonai Elohecha, hamotziacha me'eretz mitraim mibet avadim. What is the danger? Your heart will grow haughty, and you will forget, Yudhevavhe, your God, who brought you, who freed you from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its seraphs, serpents, and scorpions, a parched land with no water in it, who brought forth water for you from the flinty rocks, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors have never known, in order to test you by hardships, only to benefit you in the end. And you'll say in your hearts, my own strength and the power of my own hand have won this wealth for me. Remember that it is who gives you the power to get wealth in fulfillment of the covenant that God made with your fathers, your ancestors, as is still the case. If you do not forget Yerhevafe, your God, and follow other gods to serve them or bow down to them, or if you do forget, sorry, I warn you this day that you shall certainly perish. Like the nations that Yerhevafe will cause to perish before you, so shall you perish because you did not heed Adonai, your God. Where'd y'all go? There you are. All right, you hear 
You hear the style of the Deuteronomist over and over and over. Remember, remember, remember. Guard yourselves lest, right? Pen, lest. What, what, it's always guard against, what are we guarding against? The shachachta that you will forget. Because the danger, according to the Deuteronomist, the danger for human beings in relationship to divinity and what is a real threat to that relationship is not suffering. That's what we think. What makes people lose faith? You know, what, what challenges the human divine relationship? We tend to think suffering. That's not the, the Deuteronomist's understanding. The Deuteronomist is very clear. What is the threat to the human divine relationship? Satiety. Wealth. Comfort. Having it good. The good life is what is most dangerous to the human divine relationship. What it leads us to do is to forget. And what do we say? It's my strength that got me this, right? So the equivalent for all you sports lovers is uh, you're standing on third because you think you hit a triple. You were walked. You got there because of somebody else, because of something else. It is not because you earned it. It's not because you deserved it. It's because you were given it as a gift, and that gift is conditional. The condition is you must remember where it comes from, and, and in remembering that, you must fulfill the, co- the covenant that you made with the force that brought all this to you. You made a deal. You made a covenant. What was that covenant? Out of all that I have been given, we promise to build a society based on these laws of justice and equity and righteousness and compassion. That is the deal. And the Deuteronomist is coming to say, if you screw up your end of the deal, you lose all rights, all access to the good life. You lose access in the, in the language of the ancient Near East. You lose access to the land. And that is death. That is the death not only of you, because you'll be at, you know, at war or you'll, you're, you'll be carried off. It's not only a threat to you physically. That's bad enough for your wives and children, because this is addressed to the males, of course. Um, it's not just that. You will lose your culture. You will lose control over the things that determine what a society is and what it looks like. You will be hauled off. You want to worship other gods? No problem. You'll be hauled off and you'll be worshiping those other gods because you'll be living in pagan civilizations. You will have lost your self-determination. You will have lost your ability to control what your society is about. And that is the worst thing that could happen to a people is losing sovereignty because you lose the ability to define what happens in America, right? If you no longer are sovereign, you don't get to determine what America is anymore. So for the Deuteronomist, you will lose the land if when you get there and you are sated and life is great 
and you forget where it comes from, you forget how you got there, you forget how and why you have all that you have and what you're supposed to do with it, meaning share it with the vulnerable, if you forget that, you will lose it all. And we know that this is being written just before that happens. All right. So I want to talk a little bit about Micha Goodman looking at this chapter. Micha, when he teaches, uh, he, he teaches uh, in different, different ideas about Deuteronomy. One of them is the concept of monotheism. So we looked at the Shema a little. We talked about the fact that Shema was in last week's uh, Torah portion, Ve'et Hanan. When we say Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, we often think what we're saying is something about numbers. That, listen, Israel, Adonai is your God. Adonai is Echad, is one, meaning one, not five. That is, that is a misunderstanding of monotheism. We often misunderstand the point of monotheism, particularly in the setting of the ancient Near East. So, Micha Goodman quotes Yechezkel Kaufman, who says that monotheism is not about there being one God. It is a much deeper move. Paganism assumes that the world is full of energy and that energy is in nature and gods are part of the natural system and they are limited just as the laws of nature are limited. That's paganism. So you do the same rituals in the spring, every spring, right, to reactivate the powers within nature so that the, the crops will, will be abundant. So then you bring offerings to the crop god or goddess to activate that god's power within nature to bring forth abundant yield for your crops, and you have to do it over and over again, right? That's, that's the deal. That's the system. And those gods are limited. Just as the laws of nature are limited, the god of the, of the crop is limited as well. Gods in the pagan system are the personification of the energies that are the inner life of nature. I want to say that again. Gods in paganism are the personification of the energies that are the inner life of nature. Even if you believe in only one of those gods, it's still a pagan god. So the move in Egypt to believe only in the sun god is an early move towards monotheism, but it isn't monotheism because it's still a pagan god. The sun god is still a pagan god. It is still about the energy within nature. In this case, the sun. So Micha has a beautiful way to say it in Hebrew. So those of you who speak any Hebrew, um, listen to how beautiful this is. He says, It is not to believe that God, El, is Echad, Ella, but rather, Shehu Meyuchad, that God is unique. Right? 
not echad the number one, meyuchad. It's a play in Hebrew. That's a very beautiful move in Hebrew. Not echad one, meaning one, not three, but meyuchad, unique, a singularity. If paganism is about how the gods are in the world, monotheism is about removing God from the world. Not that God has nothing to do with the world. That's not the move. The move is God is more than the world. Yeah? God creates the world. That's why our creation story is so interesting when you look at it in the context of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Because what the move is for the Israelites is that God creates the world from without, from outside of the world. Monotheism in that sense, and I I love this teaching by Micha, monotheism in the ancient Near East is therefore heresy. (laughs) Right? We are heretics. And in some ways, we remain heretics, holy heretics, right? It was heresy to suggest that God is somehow outside of nature because what you do then is you desacralize nature. That was heresy in the ancient world. When you desacralize nature, you have made a move that the pagan world would have understood as radically anti-religious. That sets the stage, argues Micha, this deeper move of monotheism, removing God from within nature to being more than nature and having actually created nature. By desacralizing nature and making that move, it opens up the possibility of believing in science. Right? I never put that together before. (laughs) Right? That is a big move, people. That's a really big move. Once you do that, once you move the gods outside of nature, you now can, you can look at nature and analyze it rationally and objectively. That begins with monotheism. That begins with the move of the ancient Israelites that really comes to the fore and grows into a different kind of form in Deuteronomy. Because in Genesis, we still have God hanging out in the garden, right? At the heat of the day. No such thing for the Deuteronomist. That could never, ever, ever, ever happen, ever. This is a, a move to a bigger, broader concept of monotheism. For Deuteronomy... Therefore, the greatest possible sin is idolatry. Limiting the divine, worshiping a part, a piece of the divine instead of the whole, that is idolatrous and that is the worst thing you could possibly do. God is the mystery, capital M. God is not here and is not something that we can control in any way. That is a a move that is counter to paganism and is a very difficult move. Because if you feel you can control the gods in some way, doesn't your life get a whole lot better? (laughs) Right? I don't know about y'all. 
But this, we don't know when it's going to end. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't have any control. Like, really? That sucks. And it upsets us existentially more than just about anything, right? And this is the real, and you know, you've heard me teach this a billion times. This is the sin of the golden calf. They call the calf yud heh vav It is not apostasy. They are not leaving the worship of yud heh vav It is not apostasy. It is idolatry. They are, they are worshiping God in an aspect that they want God to appear in because it's familiar. And it's an aspect of God they feel they have some access to and control over. That is the idolatrous sin of the calf. Not that they're not worshiping God. It's that they are limiting God. And the Deuteronomist and Jeremiah, according to Micha Goodman, go a step further than you can't even have an image, even if you call it yod blah, blah, blah. It's th- that's not the worst. That's not the only idolatry. The other idolatry is to think that God lives in the box that's in the Mishkan. They won't call it idolatry. But that's the move of Deuteronomy. God is not in that box in the Mishkan. And God is not in the Holy of Holies. Ready for this? I know it's going to sound scary for a second. God is not in the Holy of Holies in the temple either. That is the move, a radical move of Deuteronomy. Quit focusing all y'all's attention on the sacrifices. That is not what God cares about. God cares about you being in the land and you are sated and you say, I did this. That's the worst kind of idolatry for Deuteronomy. Y'all will say, we built this. We made this. We deserve this. That is the worst. That will get you kicked out. That will earn you destruction because you will have forgotten and everything that Yodhei did for you and the covenant that you agreed to as a result. So Mehmet's asking about when Deuteronomy is, is written. Yes, they believe parts of Deuteronomy are post-exilic. Um, a lot of scholarship uh, coalesces, meaning they agree, which is not an easy thing to have happen in Jewish scholarship. But a lot of biblical scholarship agrees that it is written as an attempt by the South to get its act together so they don't fall like the North. The North fell in 722. This is written around 100 years later, according to many scholars, under Josiah, who is trying, and Hezekiah, right? They're trying to bring the folks in from the outer edges because they can't protect the edges of Judahite society anymore, and they, and they, from the Assyrians, the Neo-Assyrians, and so they are centralizing in Jerusalem to try to hunker down. And the Deuteronomist school really believes, as does Jeremiah, that it is not living in line with the covenant and its demands that will bring the destruction. They don't care about sacrifice. They want the Israelites to stop focusing on the temple ritual. They want the Israelites 
to live and build and, and reform their society in line with the values that say you shall protect the widow and the orphan. You will protect the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That if you don't do that, you will cause a rot at the core that will bring the house down around your ears. And I don't know about y'all, but Deuteronomy's ringing a little different to me this year. It's not just fire and brimstone. I get it this year in a different way. If you all continue on this path, you will bring the whole place down around your ears. The richest country in the history of the world. The richest democracy. The safest place for Jews ever. I know George is going to take me to task on that. It's okay. He's muted. So the safest place for Jews in the history of the world is here. The United Kingdom and Israel lasted 100 years. We've been here 250. But the whole thing hinges on y'all building a democracy based on the values stated in Deuteronomy. That's what some of us believe. That if you don't take care of those who are vulnerable, if you don't take care of those at the margins and at the edges, and you continue to enjoy your success on their backs, you will have quite a mess on your hands. America. (laughs) All right. So Micha looks at the verse we read. One day you're going to be in the land. You're going to have it all. You're going to have a nice car and a nice house and a nice sanctuary at KI. And you're going to have, your kids are going to go to great schools and you're going to wear really, really expensive sweaters. This is from TJ. It's okay. You're going to wear really expensive clothes and great shoes And you're going to take amazing vacations. And then what's going to happen? Ram levavcha. Your heart will get ram, high, haughty. I love that word. Haughty. It's a great translation. Your heart will grow haughty. And you will say, I did this. There's nothing wrong in our tradition, by the way, with saying, I worked really hard for this and teaching our kids the value of hard work. That is not what this is about. It's about a step before that. I am privileged to have work that is dignified, work that is respected and respectable, that pays me to have all these things. There's a step before I worked hard, (laughs) right? It's that I'm alive, that I live here, that I'm free to work, that I'm able-bodied enough to work, that my mind for today is functioning well enough to work. It can be argued, but all right, we'll just pretend. And so that the, the, that's, the, that's the move of Deuteronomy. Yes, you worked your fields and tilled your crops and harvested and did all of that. That's great. How did you get on that land? How did you get the right? to till that land and eat the bounty of that land only because it was given to you and it was given to you on condition. It was given to you on loan. Here are the terms of the loan, people. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Here are the terms. 
So you're going to be in the land. Everything's going to be great. Your heart then is going to grow haughty, which happens to successful people. They think that they are successful people, says Micha Goodman, rather than people to whom success has happened. Yes? It works the other way too. Kids who think they're stupid or bad rather than they failed a test or did something wrong. It works both ways. But Deuteronomy is not worried about the second one. Deuteronomy is worried about the first one. I am a successful person, not I am a person to whom success has happened. Because if I'm just a person and success has happened to me, then what, what is my response? Gratitude. Gratitude that this happened to me. I participated in it. Yes, I made some good choices. Absolutely. But, but success was gifted. The, the opportunity to be successful was granted to me. How does this inform the evolution of life in Israel? So can you be a little, uh, a little more clear, um, Bob, about what you're asking there? And I'm happy to talk to it. So I guess I'm we, a little, uh-huh. you can hear me. I guess I'm a little concerned um, that the interactions between Israel and a lot of its neighbors interaction of Israel uh, within uh, numerous uh, subgroups inside is not carrying on um, uh, kind of the sense that um, people are not getting blown up about, proud of, overly proud of their lifestyle. Um, It it seems like it's a lot of what you're saying uh, that Israel is not doing right now. Right. So, we could look at Israel. We can look at the United States, right? It's, sure. the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the same failure in both countries. And Deuteronomy would argue, I, th- I think, Micha would argue, that De- the Deuteronomist would argue, that is human nature. It is human nature to over-identify with success or failure in some cases, right? You know, that we over-identify, we forget to say, wait a minute, right, that I had this meal is a great thing. So the rabbis at that sentence, ve'achalta, v'savata, uverachta, the literal translation is ve'achalta, and you will eat. V'savata, and you, kind of like when you'll eat, when you'll be sated, uverachta, and when you bless, blah, 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 right, then it goes on. But the rabbis say, ah, 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 it is not a statement. That is a commandment. Ve'achalta, when you eat, v'savata, and when you are sated, uverachta, then you will bless. Not before you eat, the rabbis say. Because before you eat, it's easy to offer a bracha, thank you for this food, you're hungry. When is it, what, what is this? It is a commandment so that we don't get sated and then just go about our business and say, yay me, look at me, I have the greatest food because like I shop really well at really good places like Gelson's and Erewhon. Like, so that, that's, that's not why you have good food. You have good food because it's been gifted to you. The opportunity to earn the money to buy that food in the village. Some of us can't afford to shop in the village. But 
So the the rabbis say, Uverachta, the blessing when you're sated is a practice of gratitude when we are least likely to be in touch with it to keep us from Ram Livavcha, the haughty heart that will lead to our destruction and will lead to our exile and will lead to us losing the very thing that we claim we were all so great about. All right. Um, uh, Can you explain more about what you mean by the Deuteronomist? The Deuteronomist is the school that wrote Deuteronomy. So we uh, we use a singular term, the Deuteronomist, for this author or the final redactor, the final editor of Deuteronomy. It is a school of thought. So somebody had to, had to put it together. Somebody had to write this. Somebody had to choose what Moshe is going to reiterate and what not. That author is the Deuteronomist. But it is a school of thought. So we might have a brilliant speech written by a Democratic leader, let's say, but it is a school of thought, right? The Democratic Party has a philosophy, presumably, um, And it is out of that school, it is out of that way of looking at things, it is out of that perspective that this is written. And why is the Deuteronomist, why does the Deuteronomist keep hammering this? It's to what Bob said. Because the Deuteronomist looks around and sees Israel, sees America, and sees that people are forgetting where it all came from. People are forgetting that they didn't hit a triple. They are forgetting that it's a gift. And they are forgetting, more importantly, the conditions of the covenant. The Deuteronomist is writing this, Bob, because they weren't doing it. The prophets only have to yell and scream because the people aren't living in line with what they believe to be the heart, the core of Israelite values. What does a relationship with yud heh the creator of the universe, what does it demand from us? Only that you should act justly, walk humbly with your God, right? So all those things that it demands from us that the prophets yell and scream about because the people are not doing it. We're not doing it. That's why we have to keep reading this, right? Many, 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 many generations of rabbinic scholars would love not to have to read Deuteronomy anymore, <laughs> right? Because it'll be redundant, Department of Redundancy Department, because we're, we're doing it. We're living it. Why do we need to read this? But unfortunately, <laughs> being the human beings that we are with the tendencies that we have, we take it for granted, And if you behave like those other nations, says the Deuteronomist very clearly here, if you behave like all of those nations that I dispossessed to give you this opportunity, you will be dispossessed just like them. You are no different than them. What makes you different is adhering to a covenant that they don't have with me, says Yehovah. I picked y'all, this scrawny little nothing 
gum on the bottom of Pharaoh's sandal. I picked you to give you this chance. You are no different from them unless you choose to live and hold up your end of the bargain, in which case you will be my treasured possession. You will be Amsegula. You will be the crown jewel of my crown, my, on my throne, says the king of kings. But if not, you are no different than the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, everybody I kicked out of the land to give it to you. That is the school of Deuteronomy. That is the move as the north has fallen and the south is going to fall soon. If this is written around 620, when does it fall? 586. That's not very long, right? From 620 something to 586, that's not very long. And it's gone. And they are exiled. And sovereignty won't happen for another 2,000 years. All right. I'm going to see if there are people who want to say something. I saw something in the chat. What was that? Is gratitude to, to God the reason that Deuteronomy is the final book? In other words, there's nothing more to say. Everything else is commentary. P- pretty much, right? It's, it's the last of the five books. It's the beginning of the Deuteronomic history. It's the beginning of the Deuteronomist recounting Israel's history. It continues with Joshua, the next book. Um, so really, some people argue it should be six books, right? The Hexateuch instead of the Pentateuch. Really, Joshua should be included. But that was not the decision of the final redactors. Um, it was five books. Um, but, but, and I think, to your point, David, that's kind of one of the reasons they didn't cross the Jordan at the end of the five books, right? That they didn't include Joshua. Because it's like, it's more powerful to leave it with this speech, with Moshe saying, gratitude, 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 that, that, you, that it is contingent. Your being in the land is contingent. And yeah, I think it's a powerful way to leave. So they snip the, the death of Moses from the end of Numbers and put it at the end of this speech in Deuteronomy because then it's like, boom, he speaks all these words, he dies, we close the final book. Because then... Then the question should become, hopefully, how are we doing? When I teach bar and bat mitzvah kids and we get to the core of their Torah portion and we get to the values and the ethics and the morals and the, and the challenges that, that we are asked to, to or, or, and the human societal challenges we're always dealing with, and here's the Israelite take on what, what we should be doing, I always ask them, so how are we doing? <laughs> and it doesn't take them long to say, not very well. And not one of them has ever come to me and said, yes, Rabbi, we are nailing it. Not one kid. And they are 12 and 13 people. They get it. They see it. When you name the values for them that we're supposed to be building our society on, pick any part of Torah you want. They look at this. They read this when I explain it to them and they go, <laughs> we are not doing such a great job. Mehmet, you want to say something? Um, Amy, you said that you read Deuteronomy very differently this year. 
And when you say this year, I'm assuming you're talking about the new uh, norm life in during COVID-19. Because the normal life that we call is past. It's, we, we no longer live in it. I'm like 7,000 miles away from KI, from you all. Uh, it's a different life. So how, how do you read Deuteronomy from that perspective this year? So uh, you could elaborate it's, part, it's partly COVID. It's partly COVID related, but more, it's not really related to COVID. It's related to the failure of the people in charge to take care of the people who were vulnerable, who were most vulnerable. And maybe we're blind to that because we just are a racist society. I get that. Um, but once it's pointed out that that community, another community is, is, is more vulnerable and nothing is done to address that, there's no responsibility taken for, for what to do about that. The fact that we are living in a, in, a, in a time that there is such vitriol and such disgusting stuff thrown around as politics, it's, it's just shameful. And if we stay in a place of hubris, America's the best, America's the greatest, America first, if we stay in this, we will lose our democracy. We will lose the right to be here and the right to sovereignty. I think I, I, I am sensing, like the Deuteronomist, that the, that the foundations of our liberal democracy are shaking. I believe there are cracks at the foundation that if we don't attend to, it is very possible for this whole thing to come tumbling down. And I am not trying to be an alarmist. I am not trying to get hysterical. I believe we should heed the warning. Every liberal democracy that has failed has elected in free elections a totalitarian regime. Every democracy that has failed has failed because the people have become so polarized that they cannot work together and they elect an authoritarian regime to come in and fix it. I believe it is hubris, Ram Levavecha. Our hearts can get really high and really haughty that it can't happen here, that it can't happen to us. In that case, I agree with George that it could happen here. What could happen here? The failure of democracy. Failing to be a republic. That could happen if we don't get our act together. Um, so, so this year, I mean, I, I do. I, I'm so, it's so dismal. The, the nature of our public discourse is so disgusting that I, I'm, I, so, I, I so hear the words of the Deuteronomist. I, I get it. What, what do we do? Like I, th that's that's the work, of course. But I, but I think the message rings for me truer as a warning than ever before. Written by people who knew they were close to losing it all. Well, the trend you're talking about in the United States seems to be global these days. Not it's not only there, yeah. and that's scary. That is very scary. When we think, says Rita Efros, of the dangers of idolatry, I fear that the Western wall has become too close to idolatry. <laughs> well, 
the things we substitute for, right? What's right? Absolutely. Whenever, and I think the Deuteronomist would agree, whenever a thing becomes the point and becomes the focus, because God was behind that wall, so we got to have that wall, you are really close to building another kind of wall. It's a slippery slope, right? Because Jeremiah would say, God, okay, so God, God was not behind that wall. God is everywhere. God is in your righteousness. God is in your charity. God is in tzedakah. God is in justice. God is in sharing what you have with those who have less. That's where God is. Get your mind out of the temple. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, but, right? Yes, that's, that's why the wall. It's the same thing Jeremiah was screaming about. It's not about that building. That is not where God is. That's your problem, people, is you've locked God in a temple building. That's idolatry. Robert Gorin. Um, you said something for, for uh, quoting Micah that really uh, got to me about, about um, basically the Deuteronomy is saying, look, God is not here. He's not even on this planet. Um, and Deuteronomy basically enabled the world to uh, respect and understand the power of science. And what I'm thinking, what, what I wanted to say is that let's put ourselves in perspective. Human beings have only been around, what is it, 10,000, 20,000 years, homo sapiens. And, 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 and by the way, for those of you who haven't, you might want to just go read Harari's book, Sapiens, which, is, which puts it in perspective. An Israeli, by the way, brilliant Israeli, puts us in perspective. First of all, there were human beings long before there were us. And the world has been around so much longer than, than human beings have been around. And there's one quote in that book that is totally scary, but so credible. Harari doesn't believe there's a very good chance Homo sapiens will not be around in a thousand years. One thousand years. That the planet won't survive Homo sapiens. The planet will not survive us. He is very, very worried. And that what Micah said is so true. We have to understand how insignificant we human beings on this earth, not to say the lucky ones in Palisades, how insignificant we are in the scale of what has been created in this universe and that if we can, we can have we can that on just like that if we could I mean, have that humility out. really have that humility which is what torah teaches we wouldn't be consuming to the point where we're going to kill the planet and our own ability to survive right that I you agree. take the commandments to israel and put them on humanity writ large share what you have you have plenty. A gratitude practice is what allows us to really experience satiety. You have enough. Maybe COVID is going to teach us a little bit about that. You, do you need another pair of shoes or another sweater? Right? Some of us haven't shopped, really, in five months. Like, it's 
wow, you know what? I really don't need, right? So getting in touch with satiety through gratitude moves us to a place of less conspicuous consumption, right? That is going to kill us and the planet and everything else. Um, so yes, Robert, to your point that we should be humble that we have been given this opportunity and given all these gifts. And as humanity, we need to really get it that we are part of an ecosystem that we have seen ourselves as separate from for so long that we have developed societal habits that are absolutely unsustainable, right? Australopithecus afarensis didn't do this to the planet, right? Australopithecus robustus did not drive an SUV. That's how they survive to evolve into, right? Into something else like us. George and then Barbara. Yes, can you hear me now? Yes, George. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, first, I agree that the fear of dictatorship in the United States is real. Second, I still think that uh, they're out to get us. Uh, but the one word I wanted to throw in is a major danger to the uh, Jewish values and identity is acculturation, uh, which is very similar to what uh, I think you were talking about. But I think using that word puts that we're all in danger because of that. That's one of the most dangerous things we have for losing our identity. That's exactly what the Deuteronomist would say. You want to be like the Neo-Assyrians? Fine. Use their society as a model. Fine. Become like them. And guess what's going to happen, right? Oh, You're exactly right. That's exactly what Deuteronomy is saying. Yes. I just wanted to throw in that word, acculturation, because that puts it in a modern approach. Right. So, but, so we, but, but we can acculturate, my argument as a progressive Jew, we can acculturate to American culture with Jewish values as our model. We can. We have to. We have to. We walk in two civilizations, said Mordecai Kaplan, and a crazy movement called Reconstructionism. We walk in two cultures. The problem is too many American Jews do not look to the Jewish part of their culture and inheritance to inform, right, their American identity. That's, That's what we're in danger of losing. Is, is the Jewish identity that informs? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Right, so that, that, that's exactly right. All right, so uh, Barbara? I think this portion is perfect for today. And Rabbi, your explanation was perfect because every nonprofit and every charitable organization I know of is, needs our help. Everyone is suffering. So if anybody who listens to you would give to their favorite charity, it would be a great thing. So it just it just hit the mark. This this portion, I think. And thank you. Good. So so Barbara is has thrown out a challenge. She's thrown down the gauntlet. Do we want to take Torah study seriously? Then each of us writes a check. At the end of this class, we write a check or take out your credit card and we give to the Westside Food Bank. You give to whatever charity you feel like right now is the one helping, or a one that is helping at the, at the edges um, where we are told by the Deuteronomist, we live into our covenant and we live into our responsibility for justice and, and compassion. So thank you, Barbara, for bringing it back to Tachlis.
bringing it back to, and we're going to be doing a very serious food drive. I know that you all know we always do this at the high holidays, but we are, we are going to like, we're going to kick butt this year because more than ever, right? The need has quadruplified uh, in terms of um, hunger and people who are experiencing hunger. <laughs> Jody says, challenge accepted. Mehmet says, same here. This is great. The Torah study should result in us actually living these values. That, that's the point, right? It's not for us to just talk about it. It's for us to actually, to really lean in right now, especially really hard to trying to fix what we can. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.